might help if I hit record. But Matthew 21, this is Jesus. We'll start over. But we have a lot of different ideas on who Jesus is. We can go down to the store. We could ask people who he is. And I guarantee we'll get different answers. It's been said that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. That based on the things he said, the things he did, he's either flat out lying to us, or he's just crazy and God bless him, he was just insane and he needed help. Or he really is who he says he is, that he's the son of God. And if he's the son of God, that means he's the Lord of all creation. There's plenty of TV shows. We just watched that good Moses. No, Abraham. I always say Moses when I mean Abraham. Watched that movie about Abraham and it was good. There's plenty of movies and plays about him as well. Um, some are spot on. Some are eh, redeemable. And others are straight up blasphemous. Where the things that they say about Jesus, the things that they portray him, are either right on or they're from the pits of hell. Some religions even speak of Jesus and mention him. And even atheists, people who are in love with their own knowledge and yet claim that they don't have knowledge of God. That's what atheists, or they're without God. But they deny the truth about him. Now they'll talk about him, but they don't really know him. I think something even scarier could be said, even by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. And you're probably familiar with this, but he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, that's the last day of the judgment day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Haven't we talked about the Bible and the things of God? Have we not cast out demons? That's the trippiest one to me. That there's people out there who have ministries even that have cast out demons. They say, in your name, and we've done many wonders in your name. We've made hospitals. We've made schools. We've spread the gospel in your name. Basically saying, haven't we done all this? Let us into heaven. Haven't we done these things, God? Open the door to us. And he says, I will declare to them. Declare to them. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's heavy. That's scary. That Yeah, we have ideas who Jesus is. And some of us have such an idea of who Jesus is that we go out and we do things in his name. But then when we get, get there to see him face to face, he goes, I never knew you. You claim to know me, but we don't have a relationship I think it's interesting, you could spend all day on this, we're not, but he says, those who practice lawlessness. That he says these people who claim to be religious, who claim to know him, who claim to do good things, he say, you guys are practicing sin. You guys are doing things outside the law of God. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, he did not abolish it. He did not get rid of it. 
that we are free from striving to attain the perfection that law promises if we could but keep it, which we can't. But that doesn't mean that we get to use the law, abuse it, and we get to use grace as an excuse for sin, as Paul would say. No way. God forbid. We still have a responsibility to aim to live holy. We can't do that apart from him. But God says to be holy as I am holy. And he calls these people ones who practice lawlessness. That there are many messages out there, many teachings in the world, in colleges, in universities, on YouTube, on podcasts, and even churches, and even from Christians, so-called Christians. That's what those people would have been. They would have called themselves Christian. The world might even call them Christian. But they claim Jesus, but they miss out on who he really is. And I think that that's tough. That's a hard word. Because Jesus is clearly on display in the Bible. If we read the Bible, we really shouldn't miss him in it. We really shouldn't be able to read the Bible and not see Jesus for who he is. And yet, apparently, that's easy to do. Because I think that's where we all can go wrong. When we come to God's word, and we just simply don't expect to see him in it. We somehow look through this picture book of history and don't expect to see the face of Jesus peering out from inside. It's as if we were to make a FaceTime call with our friend and never expect to see them in camera. We just see their room. We just see their yard. We just see their mess, but we don't see them on it. That would be probably the most pointless FaceTime call ever. I'd rather talk to someone on their phone and not see their face than be on a video chat and just look at the room. It's like, why aren't you there? You could be right there. And sometimes we don't, we do that when we come to the scriptures, we don't look for him. Maybe instead we're trying to build something, our own design out of the words on the page, like Legos. We come to the, we come to the word and we say, I'm going to build a picture of Jesus the way I want to see him. We make an idol out of him and we do that absent of the one speaking to us in the word. So this morning, as we look in Matthew, Let's look for Jesus. Can we do that this morning? Can we look for Jesus? As we read the words, don't just think about them as words. Don't just read through them and not consider them, but use the words to peer through history, peer through space and time, and see Jesus this morning. So God, we pray that God, only you can open our eyes and by your spirit, like Superbook, that kids show that it's so wonderful, God, just take us back in time to see what you're doing here. And more than that, God, you're outside time. You're doing something here, right here, this morning with us. And even in a future time from this recording, to anyone who's listening, you're doing something there as well, too. Because, God, you're infinite and you're eternal and you're not bound by things like time. So, God, show us your face this morning. Let us see you and know you better for who you are, apart from anything else. Take away our, our ideas. And fill us with yours. And let us see your face. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 21. We'll read the first three verses. It says, When 
They drew near to Jerusalem, that's the disciples and Jesus, and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go over into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and he will send them immediately. Now, there's a lot we can look at in this area of scripture, but the meat of our the meat and potatoes of our message is gonna be a little bit later. But I want to point out that he says immediately. Immediately you find a donkey. When Jesus says to go and do something, we should go do it immediately. But when we go and do something, expect to see it immediate. Expect to see God working already. It may not look the way you expect, but it's there. And they go and they find this donkey. And anyone looking on would see people just walking in out of town. They find a donkey parked at the Walmart at the edge of town. And they grab the donkey and they leave. And he says, if anyone says anything to you, say the Lord has need of it. Not Jesus has need of it. Not some guys from some town, but the Lord has need of it. That it was God's donkey and whoever's it was. Now, was it somebody's who left it there? I don't know. But they knew that it was for the Lord. And the Lord had need of it. And I think when we come, as we'll see in a little bit, when we come to church, when we come to the Bible, when we come to time with him, we have need of meeting with God, but God wants to meet with us. That God has a purpose for it that immediately we can get into right in and to getting to know him. But he sends them out. They go immediately. They go immediately and immediately they find a donkey. Verse four, all this was done to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you humble and sitting on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their garments on them and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their garments on the road. Others cut down the branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him that followed him cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the entire city was moved, saying, Who is he? Who is he? They said. And the crowd said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. That Jesus quotes a scripture and he says, your king is coming. That Jesus was king. Now this is a message, an area of scripture that I think we just wait till Easter to talk about because it's about Easter. It's about the Passion Week. But he says, your king is coming. And when a king comes, when a president visits another nation like our President flies on a big plane, has a bunch of army guys with him, has a bunch of cool cars that are armored and have guns, and they do all these things to, to let the king come. But when Jesus comes, he shows up on a donkey. Some random donkey, like I said, from the Walmart parking lot down the road. You know, imagine him coming on an ATV. He's humble. He's humble. He doesn't come with pomp and circumstance. He comes on a little donkey. He doesn't even come on a big, nice-looking horse. And this word, humble, is actually the word meek. It means mildness of disposition. That Jesus wouldn't be harsh to you to look at or to think about. He doesn't come in brashly, trumpets blaring. He comes gentle. If I saw a guy riding on a donkey, 
I don't think I'd be scared of him. If I saw a guy riding on a big horse, there's a little bit of intimidating there. You see a big cowboy on a horse. He's a big, tough, rough man. But the same guy came riding in on a donkey, you might think he's poor. You might think he's not able. It's been said, don't mistake Jesus' meekness for weakness. That Jesus' strength was bound up in being meek. He did not need to be rough and tough to prove himself. And yet, when he comes back, he's not riding on a donkey. We look in Revelation, what's he riding on? A, a white horse. He comes back with a sword in his mouth. That when he comes in to prove himself as king, he doesn't come in that way. He doesn't need force to prove himself to be who he is. He uses that force, he uses that power to destroy wickedness. But when he comes in, he says, look, I want people to come to me. I want people to know me. I want people to be able to walk up to me and talk to me. But we might not do that if he comes with a flaming sword out of his mouth. That's when he comes later in power. But I think that this is, this is the ultimate power, that the God of all the earth would be on a donkey and come meek. But verse 6 through 11, we read all those already. So the disciples, they went and did as Jesus commanded him. Jesus said to go get the donkey from down the road and bring it back. And they went and did. I think, I wonder if the disciples were going, I'll bet you five denarius there's no donkey. <laughs> I'll bet you ten there is a donkey. You know, what were they doing? What were they thinking? But the two went and they found the donkey. And I like what it says here in verse 10. It says that the entire city was moved. That when Jesus showed up to their town, Jesus showed up to their city, the whole city took notice. This guy rides in on a donkey. He doesn't come in with sirens blazing, with fireworks going off, where you think the whole city could, could get their attention taken by that. He comes in on a donkey. And I love that, that when Jesus comes somewhere and shows up somewhere, that the city will be touched. That if Jesus comes to Helena which he is here already, that the whole city would be moved. It wouldn't be limited to a house. It wouldn't be limited to a church building. It wouldn't be limited to a denomination. But the whole city would come to know him, or at least have the opportunity to know that he was there and be talking about it. Remember what Jesus' name means. It means, Jehovah or Yahweh is salvation. So that's what his name means. It doesn't mean king, bow down to me. It doesn't mean most fantastic one, even though he is those things and we should bow down to him. His name is the very name that is meant to draw people to God. It means that God is salvation. That his name says, his name even calls us to come close. His name calls us to come know him and to come know God. That this is Jesus. Do we see that this morning? Do we see him coming in on a donkey? Do we see him as a way to get to know God? When we see him, are we reminded that God is salvation? That when we spend time with him, 
We should be drawn to God. We should be drawn to the salvation of God. We should be drawn to the forgiveness of our sins, the freedom of new life. And when we come to Him, if we feel condemnation, the condemnation is not from Him. That God wants to take away that condemnation, that He became that sin for us. But let's go on. We'll go to the meat and potatoes of this morning's study. Maybe. We'll see how much meat is really in here. But verse 12 says, Jesus went into the temple of God. So remember, Jesus shows up. And what's the first thing he does? Do you remember when he was a kid, when he was around 12, and they came into the, the city, and then his parents leave, thinking he's with family, and then they go back, and they spend three days looking for him, but they didn't even go to the temple. And he's like, this is... Why didn't you look here? Didn't you know it would be about my father's business? So he goes to the temple. says, Jesus went into the temple of God. And he drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Remember, in the sacrificial system, you had to bring an animal. And there's Leviticus and all these different prescribed ways to worship where a dove was for certain things. Two doves, bring a bring a calf, bring a cow, all these different things for different types of sin and the amount of them. But these people would, would be at the beginning of the temple. Imagine in the city, I don't know, you don't have any doves, right? <laughs> so you come to the temple, and you're like, well, I, I lied this week, so I need a dove to go offer my sacrifice and, and, and be forgiven. And then you come and you go to buy the dove. And if you're, it's just like when you go to buy gas. If you go to buy gas right by the highway, it's more expensive. Or if you go buy gas right at the end of town, it's usually more expensive because it's your last chance to get gas or you're a captive audience. Or when we went to the amusement park and you buy a lemonade and the lemonade is $7 and it's 30 cents of lemonade. Well, it's because you're a captive audience. They're kind of ripping you off, right? You go to the movie theater, it's $15 popcorn. Same thing. Except this is worse because this is at the temple of God. They're saying, we're gonna because you didn't come prepared, because you need it and you don't have it. And then what's worse is that they're taking advantage of people who are burdened with guilt, are burdened with sin and trying to get rid of their guilt before God. And they're charging them all 20 bucks or whatever it was for a dove that was a dollar. It's not like they had a choice. Where are they going to find a dove? It's not like they had a choice. They, they need to be forgiven. It's not like they, they, we have a choice when we pass by McDonald's and say, nope, I'm not paying $20 for a Big Mac anymore. I have a choice to not go there. But imagine I had to go there to get my sins forgiven. That would be weird. <laughs> Ronald McDonald can't forgive my sins. But that's what's happening. These people are coming... And they're being ripped off on their way to go meet with God. That they're going to the temple of God and they're getting robbed. And what does Jesus do? Well, I love how he says that it's the temple of God because I think the scripture is trying to make it very clear that this place was a place to meet with God. Because everyone in Jerusalem knew where the temple was. It was fantastic. It was a huge building. It was the center of their lives as Jewish people. And yet the scripture is clear that it's not just the temple, but it's the temple of God. And they're coming here to worship. 
They don't have the freedom yet, like Jesus says in John 4, 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor even in Jerusalem worship the Father. He's saying the day is coming, the hour, it's almost here where you don't need to come to the temple anymore. But they had to there. And I think it's interesting, he talks about doves, because doves are, again, were a specific sacrifice, but doves in the scripture is also a symbol of what? The Holy Spirit. When John baptized Jesus, it was like a dove descended, right? Even in the uh, certain churches like Calvary Chapel, they use a picture of the dove. And Jesus flipped the tables. Imagine I flipped this table right now. I don't think Jesus came in gently and said, excuse me, uh, can we move these? He came in, he saw it, and he was mad and angry, and he flipped the tables over. Money went everywhere. People got mad. Maybe the table broke. But he wasn't sinning. He wasn't meek. He came in meek, but that's not a meek thing to do. Because there's a difference between him coming to the city meek, announcing his authority and position and who he is and that we should come to him, than coming to the house of God and people being prevented from worshiping. In Acts 8, we won't go there for time, but there's this sorcerer named Simon. And he sees Peter and the guys, and he comes to faith. And then he sees the work of the Holy Spirit and the laying on of hands. And he tries to pay them for it. And he gets rebuked, saying that his heart is bound with iniquity, that there's still sin and bitterness in this man's heart from all his years of witchcraft and and relying on it for his whole life and believing in it. It's still polluting his life. Remember, sin deceives, right? That we get deceived and we sin, and as we sin, we get deceived by it. That he couldn't pay for it. That when people were coming here, they were paying to meet with God. But that money wasn't going to God. That money was lining the pockets of the guy who sold the doves. And Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He's quoting Isaiah. Do you think Jesus said that gently? I think as I read this, I think Jesus shouted it. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. This is not prayer. This is not meeting with God. This is not what God wants in his house. And I like how he goes on and says, you have made it a den of thieves. That this prayer, this house of prayer was to be addressed to God. It was a place set apart or suited for the offering of prayer. And that word prayer means worship. It means giving God his worth, turning our hearts to him, whether it's in word, whether it's in song, whether it's in teaching, whether it's in fellowship or evangelism, that when they were coming to the temple, it was to spend time with God. Earnestly. Not just rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, bless our food. It was meant to, God, I'm sick, heal me. God, my family needs you. God, my sin is overwhelming, help me, forgive me. It was meant to be a place of earnestly meeting with him. And they were prevented. That even though there was a sacrificial system, 
It wasn't about them reaching God, but it was about God meeting with them. Adam and Eve in the garden, the evening walks. Luke 18, Jesus talks about two men who went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the very religious looking guy, and the other guy, uh, a lousy tax collector. He says, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners. What are these people doing? They're extortioning. Unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector over here, God. I fast twice a week. I give tithes or 10% of all I have. I buy 10 new DVDs, God. You get one of those DVDs. And the tax collector, standing far off, Jesus says, he says he wouldn't even come close because he understood the holiness of God and his own sin. Wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. The other guy's praying, oh God, thank you for making me. But this tax collector goes, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That this is Jesus. Jesus didn't care, didn't want anything to do with the prayer of the religious guy. He wanted to go to that guy who knew who God was and knew his need for God and wanted God, not wanted himself to be God. That his, Jesus' passion was for the things of God, that God and man would meet and pray and worship and fellowship. But these people, these thieves, were getting in the way. And worse than getting in the way, worse than making it tough to walk in the, in the door, they were robbing them as they were coming into the temple. They were taking these people for everything they had, just like the government, right? When there's no competition, right? These were overpriced goods. And church history is full of these things. Thousands of years, the church, so, so to speak, charged people for things. Made people do works to try and earn forgiveness because they didn't know any better. They didn't have the word of God. They were prevented from reading the word of God. Only the priesthood can read the word. You can't understand it, but we understand it. Yes, pay us money. Give us money for new gold and new chandeliers and nicer buildings maybe you'll be forgiven for it don't sin again though people would even be turned away they couldn't pay and i think that that's why i don't like church membership this isn't in the notes because it puts a burden on people to do yeah i get the idea of a covenant but it's a relationship. If you love God and you're there, you're going to be there and you're going to be invested. You don't need some church elder coming over to you. Why haven't you tied this month? Maybe you should have. And maybe they should eventually talk to you about it. But to hold it over you. Then what? What happens if you don't fulfill your membership? Do you get kicked out? I don't, I don't see that. And I'll get off that soapbox for right now. 
but these people were probably becoming bitter. Imagine you don't have much money and you got to go pay these guys who are mean and sell doves just to go worship God. Would that prevent you? Maybe from, maybe payday is not until next week and you don't have money in the bank and you got to go buy food for your family. And you know if you go to church that day, they're going to take all your money. Would that not make you bitter? Would that not burn you spiritually? And worse, after a while, would you not begin to think that maybe this is just the way God is? That these people are the priests. These people are in the temple. The priests let these people be here. This must be what God wants. Is this all you have, God? Is this all it is? Are not people burned by the church that way today? They come to church. They're, they're, they're not loved on. There's not a genuine message. They don't encounter God there. Do they walk away going, God isn't real? Now, they, in truth, they don't really have an excuse. But in practice, we've given them one. And that's not God. That's not Jesus because God doesn't care about money. He doesn't want some price to be paid. He paid it all. And the priests in the Bible, we see them stealing from what people gave and it cost them their lives. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit about giving money to God. God did not care about that. He cared about their hearts. And Jesus calls these men a den of thieves. Can you imagine? It's like one thing to kind of go through a rough neighborhood, but imagine walking into like a mob bar or a criminal hangout to try and get through there to go meet with God. That's what he's saying. You guys are a den of thieves. You're a dark place full of a bunch of guys who like to steal and you get together and figure out how to rob people the best. Remember the good Samaritan. He rescued someone who had been attacked by thieves on the side of the road. And what happened? The Pharisees and Sadducees walked right by this man hurt by the thieves because they themselves were thieves as well. And Jesus says in John 10, 7-11, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly because I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And these men were taking the livelihood of these people to enrich themselves. But in reality, they were stealing from God. God wanted to meet with these people and these people, the, the, the money changers thought that they were just stealing from the people, just doing their duty, that they were in a position and they deserved it. And they didn't realize that they were really stealing from God. And they claimed, they were, they claimed to be serving God. We're selling doves in God's temple. I'm serving God. But they were stealing from God himself. And that's what the enemy does. The enemy wants to steal us from God and have us go to hell with him and suffer for eternity. As long as God doesn't get them, that's all I want to do. We're the currency in this spiritual war. We're the currency, the money that God is after. The value that God is after is you and me, not the, not the dollar bill. Because the enemy would love it if we went to church and we never spent time with God. That's what the enemy would love the most. We think we're spending time with God. We think we're doing the things of God, but we never actually met with him. That way, when we show up before heaven, we go, God, we went to church. 
I was a member. I paid tithe. And God goes, I never knew you. The enemy would love for you to get so close as to trick you to make you so far away. Because the person who's so far away in a ditch on drugs, out of their mind and a destroyed life is going to cry out to God and really seek him. I think in a sense, the enemy doesn't like that either, but he'd rather us be in church and not know God. Because we're least likely to be saved that way. What is the church in Laodicea, right? They were lukewarm. They were so close to the things of God, but they weren't hot or they weren't cold. And Jesus wanted to spit them out. He's like, I wish you were cold. I wish you hated me. Then I could reach you. I wish you were totally in love with me because then I could use you. But you're somewhere in the middle and you don't even know me. Because God wants you and me. He doesn't want money. God doesn't need... Why would God who created the sun and atoms and nuclear force need some paper or some gold? Widow's mites, the little old lady who gave half a penny. Jesus said she gave more than everybody else. These guys who put in $100 bills. Why? Because it wasn't about the monetary value. The temple tax. Jesus said, Peter, go down to the lake. There'll be a fish. Grab the fish, open its mouth. There's a coin. God could put a coin in a fish's mouth if he needed it. Taxes. They question him. He says, well, whose picture's on there? Well, George Washington. Well, give to George Washington what's George Washington's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. And then he says, give to God what is God's. God doesn't care about a silly little coin with someone's face on it. Because your heart and your life belong to God. You were bought with a price, the Bible says. And if that's the case for you, then anything you have is his anyway. If God says give 10%, you're already giving 100%. God, all this is mine anyway. If you want me to sell my house, if you want to take my bike, if you want my toys, if you want my job, if you want my life, it's yours anyway. Now we should still give 10% and try to give and try to give more than that and support ministries. I'm not saying that God doesn't want us to obey these things. But what I'm saying is, is that it's not what he cares about. He cares about our heart. And God doesn't need our money, but he commands us to give a portion. Why? So that our heart remains right with him. Because he knows money has a big power to twist our hearts and twist our lives. He says that many people, many believers have sought after riches and says they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. So God says, give me your money. It's dangerous. It's not dangerous for your wallet. It's dangerous for your heart. It's dangerous for your life. How many people have sacrificed family and friendship and relationship and morals and values and hope and future just to get a few extra bucks? I guarantee most people you see on TV have done so and they're not happy. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you also appear with him in glory. That the temple was to be a place of worship, not a place of business, not a place of making interest. Or of fleecing the flock. That the money was to serve the worship, not the worship serving the money. You know, I won't judge another man's work 
They're, they're God's servants. But sometimes you have to wonder, if a church, it's not, it's not wrong to be rich. The Bible, said, the Bible shows plenty of that. It's not wrong to have money. It's what we do with it. And you have to wonder, some of these mega churches, if they're spending more money on flash than they are on ministry. Now, comfortable chairs is a great thing. A nice building is a good thing. It's nice to have a nice place for people to want to go and worship God. But is God there? Have they spent it all on that? Have they, you know, I'm not going to say that's what happened to a church we came from because I don't think so. But I think in some sense, when, when it was meeting in the school and people were not so caught up in the building or were just there to serve God, that there was a genuineness there that took a little bit of adjusting and took a little bit harder to see than when it was in a nice building. But God did great things in the building too, so don't get me wrong to that. And don't get me wrong and say just because a church has a nice building or the pastor is paid well that there's sin. That's not the case. A pastor should be paid. A workman's worthy of his wages. We should build a nice building for God if that's a place for people to meet. But my point is, is if that's at the sacrifice of doing actual ministry. Missions aren't done. People aren't fed. People aren't cared for. Widows aren't watched over. Let's go on. Verse 14 to 17 says, The blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were extremely displeased. And said to Jesus, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, I love this. He goes, Yes, I hear what they're saying. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of children and infants you have perfected praise. He says to the guys who study the scripture for their living, and he says, Have you never read? Haven't you even just passed over this one page, Jesus says? And he says that he left them. And he went out to the city of Bethany and he lodged there. That the blind and the lame came and he healed them. I think we pass over that verse. That Jesus came to the temple, flipped the, flipped the tables, cast them out, and began hanging out in the temple. And what happened? As soon as the money changers left, the blind and the lame came. You know why the blind and the lame came? Because they are poor. The lame can't walk and work. The blind can't see and work. They beg. They don't have money to come by. But as soon as those money changers are left, what happens? People come out of the woodwork. And what does God do? He heals them. That means the blind could now see. Their entire life is given back to them. The lame who could not walk could now walk. Their entire life is now able. They were disabled and now they're able to do life. And what was in their way? These den of thieves who cared about money, who cared about appearance, who cared about themselves and not about the people who really needed ministry. And above that, these people were miraculously healed. Do we believe that can still happen? Well, if Jesus is really in our worship, why wouldn't it? And worse off, why doesn't it? Are we really worshiping him then? Not that we would seek after a sign, but the signs will follow. And I love, this is heartbreaking, but it says that, the scripture says they saw the wonderful things he did. That these men, these leaders looked around and saw the, Jesus healing people. Blind people. What if you saw a blind person healed? What if you saw a man who's crippled be able to get up and walk? 
They saw these things and they were displeased. They were angry. They were unhappy. What is going on here? Jesus, don't you hear the kids worshiping you? And he goes, yes, haven't you read? Haven't you read the Bible? That this and these things are the things of God. And he left them. The Bethany, the city, could mean house of dates, but it can also mean house of misery. Now, when he left, he went to a place, at least figuratively, that was a house of misery. That it doesn't please God to leave behind those who are not about the things of God. It doesn't make God happy to leave these Pharisees and Sadducees and religious blind people. And that's the saddest part. Is that he could heal people who are physically blind, but the people who are spiritually blind did not want their eyes opened. They wanted to remain blind. The people who were spiritually lame did not want to have their spiritual legs fixed. And that's interesting because there's talk about scripture about a shepherd that when there's a sheep that's been wandering away and it keeps wandering away, what does the shepherd do? He takes his staff and he breaks the legs of the sheep. He makes that sheep lame and puts the sheep over his shoulders and carries that sheep until that sheep's legs get better. That he hurts them severely that they might come to know him and never run away again. But these people wanted nothing to do with that. And that's the worst. She said, is it easier for me to, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell this guy that he can get up and walk? And he left them. It grieves him, just like in the flood. God wasn't happy about it, but he left because there was nothing he could do there when their hearts were hard. Nothing, nothing more he could do. He healed the people that needed to be healed. He ministered to the people that needed to be ministered to. He made an example. He cleared the temple. But what else could he do but move on? And Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That when, when we sense that grieving in our spirits for sin or wrongdoing, don't ignore it. Don't drive Jesus away. Let him heal you. I'm going to read a couple more verses here because I think it's fitting that this next story, this next event happens right after what we just read. And we'll go through it quickly as we close here. Verse 18 says, Now in the morning, as Jesus returned to the city, he became hungry. And when he saw a fig tree by the road, he went to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, Let no fruit ever grow on you again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed, saying, How did the fig tree wither away instantly? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, like, that's not a big deal, but also if you say to that big mountain over there, be removed and be thrown into the sea, it will be done. Is Jesus lying to them here? And whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe, you will receive. He says, let no fruit ever grow on you again. And that strikes me because he just got done talking to these Pharisees and Sadducees where there was no fruit in their lives. Their lives were withered away and they were sucking the life out of everyone who was around them. And he says, let no fruit ever grow on you again. Now when he comes to this tree and expects to eat of the fruit of the tree. There's nothing there. 
and the tree is cursed. Jesus expects there to be fruit in your and my life. That if we're believers, John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches, apart from me you can do nothing, right? That if he's the vine and we're the branches, there should be nutrients coming out of the vine into our branch and bearing fruit in our lives. That when he comes to the garden, he could eat from the garden of our lives. Now, there's nothing there, there's a problem. And these people were claiming to be of God and there was nothing fruitful in their life. Ezekiel 34, again from time, we won't read, the, read it now. But it's a strong rebuke against the shepherds of Israel who are herding the sheep, stealing from the sheep. In fact, I want to turn there real quick. Ezekiel 34. I'm going to close here in two seconds. Maybe. I'm trying to buy time with you guys. says, I'll simply read it. And the word of the Lord came to me, that's Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You kill those who are fed without feeding the flock. The disease you have not strengthened, nor have you healed that which was sick, nor have you bound up that which was broken, nor have you brought back that which was driven away, nor have you sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty you have subjugated them. They were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became meat to all the beasts of the field and were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Indeed, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and no one searched or sought after them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became prey and my flock even became meat to every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherd search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, I am against the shepherds and I will require my flock from their hand and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Nor shall the shepherds feed themselves anymore for I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they may not be meat for them. Jesus is not saying wolves came and ate the flock. He's saying the shepherds ate the flock. That's not a shepherd's job. Shepherd's job is to care for the sheep, to protect the sheep, to feed the sheep, to know the sheep, to lead them in and out safely. But where can they go when the shepherds are hurting the sheep? What can the sheep do when the people are meant to care for them? I watched a video the other day of parents who are abusing the children for 30 years. Kids didn't even know, never even went to first grade didn't even know what the outside world was like, chained to their beds. What could those kids do? Thankfully, one of the daughters who looked like she was 12, who was 17 because she was malnourished, snuck out and figured out how to call the cops. Government school. Parents sending their kids to government school. The teachers who are meant to teach them 
right things, good things, math, reading, writing, are destroying them, are devouring them with wickedness and sin and twisting them for their own, for their own ideal. What can the sheep do? Well, God notices here. God pays attention and he's very upset about it. And justice will come. Because we started with prayer and a house of prayer will end with prayer. That Jesus says, if you pray, if you pray for anything, I'll answer. And it'll be the answer we want. But if we come to God and we pray for him, it's not a magic spell to get a new computer or to get a Ferrari or to get a horse or to get a million dollars. God may give you those things. But when we come to him, it's, it's not to feed ourselves. It's to meet with God and know what he wants to do and feed his sheep. Because if we're meeting with God and seeking him and believing him in prayer and worship and word and fellowship and evangelism, then it's not a fiction to believe or expect the things of God that we talk about with him and desire with him to happen. That the things that seem impossible, like moving that mountain, that mountain moved. God, I feel like you're calling me to go somewhere or do something, but I don't have all the money for that. I don't know how that would ever happen. But if you're talking about God, talking about it with God, and something that God wants to keep talking about with you, of course it's going to happen. Why would God spend his time, so to speak, and talk with you about something and then never do it? Why would I talk with you all the time about going to get Buffalo Wild Wings and then never do it? That's what these parents did to their children. They would, they would bring home nice, delicious food and they weren't allowed to eat it and they would torture them with it. God doesn't do that. God says, if you believe me, I'll show myself to you. Because he's the living God and our relationship with him should be living. Like Colossians says, when Christ, who is our life, appears. But if we say, God, Move that mountain, and it'll be moved. God, move that mountain. I'm praying. <laughs> but I'm probably praying for me that I might go, well, check it out, guys. I moved that mountain. Look at how much faith I had. But if that was something that God was asking for me to do for my relationship with him and for others in ministry, I guarantee that mountain whoosh, would be moved, and there would be a valley there. I guarantee it. Why? Because Jesus said so. Jesus doesn't lie. Because this is Jesus. Jesus is the one who is concerned for our souls. He's the one who isn't concerned about what people think. Who, when he visits the house of God, expects God to feel welcome and all the people to feel welcome. Of every age, children, adult, black, white, brown, yellow, to come and cry on worship. Not to come and be sinful and bring their sinful lifestyle into God's house, but to come into God's house to be forgiven from their sinful lifestyle. And if they're not able to do that, he will turn things upside down. Why are I saw that new story of a church, an old church in Connecticut from the 1800s where the steeple fell in. I think the church has been dead for a long, I don't know for sure, but my guess is that that church was an old denominational church and that church died and the denomination died and then the building was still there, but it's not upkept. The church will die without God. It may go on, but it's, it doesn't have his presence. He'll turn things upside down. He'll make a big mess. Because he won't let anything stand in the way of his sheep coming to him and getting to know him. 
As we close, is this the Jesus that you and I know? Is this the Jesus we know? Is this the Jesus we see when we come to Scripture? Because if it's not, we need to let it be. Take a closer look, an honest look at what the entirety of Scripture says about Him. Not, you are loved, and then skip the rest of the Scripture. Because it's His Word. Jesus spoke this Word. He spoke it about Himself to reveal Himself to us. To reveal His loving, His tender, His meek, His caring, and yet His bold and uncompromising and sometimes table-flipping Son to us that we might know who God really is because God wants us to know him God wants nothing in between us the scripture says if God wanted to hide himself who could find him but God hasn't hidden himself he has revealed himself in creation and his word and his son amen God thank you for your word thank you for your grace we pray that your word would go forth out in all the world we pray for your sheep we pray for your shepherds too that need encouragement to give them encouragement for those who are doing the right job, to help them do the right job, for those who are beating the sheep and devouring them, God, wake them up, get a hold of them, protect those sheep. For those sheep who are lost, God, help us seek them to bring them into the fold, uh, God, because we know that's what you're doing. And so we pray that you would forgive us where we lack. God, help us to see you more and to see you as you really are, not as who we want you to be, but, God, who you are. And we love you, God. Thank you for all this. Thank you for your word and for forgiveness and communion. And we ask God that you would be glorified these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you. And guess what? His face wants to shine upon you. God bless you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until the door.